Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to this very special edition of Atlanta Business Radio. It is time for Market Mate Atlanta. Stone Payton, Corey Rick here with you. Today's episode brought to you in part by ARC, American Reprographics Corporation. If you print it, print on it, or simply want it printed, head on over to arcinatlanta.com. Or better yet, reach out to our good friend Mindy Godwin. Let her know that Corey Rick and Stone Payton sent you 770-394-2465. Corey, good morning, sir. How are you, man? I'm great, Stone. Great to be here again. How are you on this fine November day? I am doing well, but I want to honor you. I want to give you a personal shout out. It was, has it been a couple of weeks now? We had a breakfast supporting and celebrating the whole ecosystem surrounding the Tuesdays with Corey show. And there was coffee there. Okay. That there's points crucial, right there. crucial component, but most important, <laughs> there was grits. And I got to tell you, I really believe with all my heart, and I've been helping people produce better results in less time with their marketing efforts for some 30 years now. I believe the answer to world peace and most marketing problems in the professional services arena, I believe they can all be solved with a plate of grits. What do you think? I, uh, <laughs> I'm Minnesota. not really a fan of grits, so I, uh, <laughs> I don't really have an opinion on that, uh, Stone. But, right. but thank you. Yes, sir. But shout out to you, man. You're doing some great work with the show. And the relationships that you've cultivated, uh, you know, with and through that show are, are, are just fantastic. And we're delighted to be a part of it. But I love doing the Market Made Atlanta show with you. One of the things I like doing about it is you always seem to, to get us set up with the most fascinating, most passionate, sharp guest. And I'm sure today's episode is no exception. Who'd you, who'd you bring with you today, man? Well, today on Market Made Atlanta, we have the distinct pleasure of a guest who really doesn't need an introduction. John Fenton comes to us today with decades of business success with what is now BDO, the last eight years of his tenure there having culminated in him being the managing partner of the Atlanta office. I've known John for many years, and he brings a multitude of both personal and business success to our show today. In addition to his previously mentioned business success, John's an author, executive coach, as well as an ex-Division I football player for the Miami Hurricanes in the late 70s and early 80s. John, welcome, my friend. Thank you, Corey. It's great to be here. John, why don't you give uh, take a minute and uh, introduce yourself to the listenership? Uh, you've done so much, I don't know that I could do it justice, so I thought I would throw it over to you to do that. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I, as you mentioned, I played um, at a very high level in collegiate athletics. I got my MBA. The highest the, level. The highest level, that's right, um, in football and got my MBA my last year at the University of Miami. Go Canes. We're playing FSU tomorrow. Big game. Big game for us. Big rivalry game. Is that really going to be a game given where FSU's program is at now? Well, both of our programs are, are having their struggles right now. So it's always – but that just forget about everything else. That is a big game. Yeah. That, that all hands – it would be in Tallahassee. Uh, you know, it's going to be no hole, no holes barred, and it's going to be full on, full go by both teams, and uh, it's going to be an exciting day. A lot of those games, one of those games I was in has always been decided by a point hmm. or two or three, and um, you've heard about wide, wide, wide right and wide left. Um, so I had that experience. I, you know, became a CPA, worked for, uh, ended up with BDO USA, uh, and was a managing partner in High Point, North Carolina, as well as Atlanta, and. Uh, and had a great experience there and became an, and retired about six years ago 
I'm executive coach. I do team building, lead workshops, retreats. Um, I uh, work one-on-one with executives and, and their key executives. I uh, also am an award-winning speaker, inspirational, motivational speaker, uh, really helping executives and their teams be the best they can be. How does your experience as a college athlete, how does that help you help others? That's a great question. I had this question in another podcast I was on a few months ago and, um, you know, playing, I played center and I played for three different head coaches over a five year period. I got Richard at one season and there's a lot of ups and downs in those, in those, those years. And, um, you know, very fortunate in high school to be on a champion, state championship team, undefeated team, very successful team. Was that in Florida? It was in Florida, uh, near Miami and Hialeah, Florida, for anybody that knows. Um, and Hialeah, Hialeah, Miami Lakes High School. Hmm. Um, we were 14 and 0. And a lot of great lessons there, but I was never an athlete. Before I got to high school, I was not athletic at all, honestly. Really? Yeah. And that's kind of part of my story. Um, and, uh, really about eighth grade, I started getting into athletics and it's part of my origin story. If you want to hear it now. Yeah, I okay, do. Okay, great. Um, and so, um, I was not athletic at all. Um, and back in those days, like 69 or so, 70, uh, the president's physical fitness award was a big deal. And like started testing it in sixth grade and through junior high. And if you got the gold award, you got this patch you could wear on your sweater or your jacket that like the presidential seal. It was a really Mm -hmm. cool thing. Um, in the junior high I went to, we call it junior high back in those days, not middle school. Um, they were very proud of the fact they had the most award winners every year. And, uh, and, and we had phys ed every day in class and school. And I lived right, literally right across the street from the school. And we had an obstacle course we had to navigate as a warm up for phys ed. At the very end of the obstacle course was a green wall. And uh, Coach had us in platoons, sort of like uh, – and it was Coach Hickey. He was a great man, you know, typical flat-top haircut with the the uh, boxer shorts stuck out the bottom of his shorts. No gray area. No gray area, right. And um, he um, but he had us in pl- sort of platoons based on how we performed the year before in the President's Physical Fitness Award. And it was a gold shirt, boys who wore gold t-shirts that won the award. And there were boys who wore blue t-shirts and red t-shirts. And everybody else who failed miserably wore white t-shirts. And I was in the white t-shirt group. And initially, initially, right. And as, as things, you know, things turn out, sometimes you hear, you get feedback from, from your peers, right? And it was a boy in the gold t-shirts group that said to us boys in the white t-shirts, you're nothing but a bunch of cream puffs. Now look, I love pastries. I'll bet that, I'll bet that, I'll bet that cheered you up. <laughs> I love, I love pastries and cream puffs, but it just landed on, it landed with me. And I kind of looked around the other boys in the white t-shirts and not that I was any better than they were, but it didn't define me. And I was no, my mindset was, you're, you're no, you have a gold t-shirt, but you're no different than I am. You just did better on this test. And that was an epiphanal moment for me. Hmm. And I chose to, went home and really, you know, Middle school, junior high, there's a lot of anxiety going on, right? But I went home and I kind of thought about this and uh, I decided that I was going to win the President's Physical Fitness Award. And when we would run that obstacle course, I could never, I was overweight, I was 30 pounds heavier than my age group. So I never played any sports before that because I was too big, too heavy for my age group. But I could never get over that green wall. I didn't know how, I didn't have the tools or the mindset to how to do that. And coach would get frustrated with me. Um, so I made it a mission to climb that green wall and get over that wall. And I could see that obstacle course from my front yard every day. So, and coach would also have us run laps around the field. So I used to run way in the back and whine and complain and, 
and um, why are they making this run, this hurts, and all that kind of stuff. And I just chose to run near the front of the pack the next time we had to run a mile or whatever around the field. And I chose to tackle that obstacle course, so I practiced it every weekend, Mm. every weekend, until I mastered that green wall and won the award in about two years' time. I won that gold award, and that changed my life. That Mm. set me on a path to where I'm at today. I think everybody that's played uh, college sports, they they can uh, many times, on many occasions, look to one or two events that happened and count it as a turning point. And it sounds like uh, that woke you up. You have a comment by the guy in the gold T-shirt. Absolutely. Uh, I call them defining moments. And, you know, many times we have many defining moments in our life. Sure. And that was definitely a pivotal moment for me. And it changed my whole life. When did you get to the University of Miami to play football? 1976, my freshman year. Okay, so you graduated from high school in 76, mm-hmm. and you played for three different head coaches. That's right. How was it transitioning from one coach to the next? Was that difficult? It was hell. How so? <laughs> so uh, the coaching staff that recruited me my freshman year, they were fired at the end of the season. And this is well documented in, in books that the University of Miami almost canceled the football program. My freshman year. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, one of the administrators, I believe, is Dr. Green, provost, I believe. He said, no, we told the trust, board of trustees, we need to invest in the program. At the time, it was costing a lot to run these programs, and they weren't bringing a lot of money, not a lot, not a lot of TV revenue. The team was not very good. And, um, you know, it wasn't the popular choice to go to University of Miami. I was a top 20 recruit. I was recruited by uh, South Carolina, Florida, Florida State, Pittsburgh, and some other universities. And uh, I chose to stay closer to home. What made you do that? It was more of a gut feel than anything. Um, I just felt like I fit in there. And they had a great history of guys going on to the NFL. And I had that dream to go to the next level. Um, And and I also knew my parents would not be able to travel to see me play. And so that was part of my decision, too. Um, So freshman year, all the coaches are fired. They brought in Lou Saban from the Buffalo Bills who I asked Nick Saban a few years ago, I was actually the president of the Touchdown Club in Atlanta, and I, I was at a dinner and Nick was there, and I asked him, are you related to Lou Saban? He said, no, maybe distant cousins, but not. So Lou Saban came in, spring football my freshman year, and it was just like he was making it so difficult to see who really wanted to stay, who really wanted to be there. And um, guys were literally, in back in the in now the same as today as it was back then, uh, uh, you get a one-year scholarship that's renewable. So it's not guaranteed four years or five years. Yeah. And uh, guys were just packing up their stuff and I'm done. I'm not a quitter. But one day in the locker room, Lou Saban sits me down during spring football. And I'm playing miserably. I'm not doing well. I couldn't even explain why I wasn't doing well, but I wasn't uh, performing not nearly to the standards that I was used to. And here I was less than a year ago. year before that, I was a top 20 recruit in the state of Florida, blue chip prospect, highly recruited. Coach sits me down in the locker room. There's no one else in the locker room. And he says, Fenton, I don't think you really want to be here. I was shocked. I was in dis- total disbelief. What gave him that idea? I wasn't. I, he was testing me. Honestly. And I wasn't performing, yeah. right? So I didn't believe him. I didn't quit. Um, in between, and I wasn't playing center then. I was an offensive line, but not center. One of the other coaches came to me and said, you know, you might have a better chance making the team if you play center. So I said, okay, because we needed help. And the first string center was hurt. There wasn't, there was only one 
uh, back up to the first string center and I was entering my sophomore year. So I got redshirted that year, played center. I was back up. I traveled every game because in case the guy got hurt, the Mike Smith was his name. Um, and he was a great, uh, great center, great athlete, but he had a banged up knee. And so I was kind of insurance. Um, and so I got to travel to every game. So went to great play, Tuscaloosa and Notre Dame and all these great places. I mean, of course we got our butts kicked then and, uh, we were three and eight, I think. And, um, but it was a great experience. And then the next year, um, second, lose second year at Miami. Um, I was second string center now and, um, it was, it's interesting. And I, I wanted to share the story. So talk about piv- defining moments of pivotal moments. I was second string. I was on some special teams, but I was always ready to go in the game. I was always prepared. I knew the game plan. I knew the play calling. I knew down and distance. As a center, you have to really know all these things. And there was one play. It was against Florida State. Speaking of which, Florida State's our second game of the year. We lost our first game miserably to Colorado. Second game of the year in the Orange Bowl. And it's middle of the game, and it's third and long. The center comes off the field because he had an equipment problem. I ran out. I, was, I had my strip, chin strap was already on. I ran out in the field. I called the huddle. So pass play called. Ron Simmons who was a great uh, All-American nose tackle for Florida State in those days. Became a professional wrestler later. Some people may know him from that. Or if you're an FSU fan, you certainly know the name Ron Simmons. And Ron was a nose tackle. And so we called the play. I think Ron kind of tripped. I jumped on him. We threw the pass incomplete. We run off the field and punt the ball. Now, one of the other assistant coaches relayed, you know, recounted the story for me. And so the coaches the next day on Sunday, they're breaking down film, they're watching film, and um, we come in in the afternoon and we have exercises and we watch film and we kind of see where we screwed up and mistakes we made. And they never point out the good stuff, always the stuff we messed up, <laughs> right? And so the coaches were breaking down the film before the team got there and, and, and they're watching the film and they're going back and forth and go, wait a minute, who's that playing center? And someone said, I think that's Fenton. And what happened was the coaches on Monday decided to revamp the entire offensive line. And so we moved guys around to positions they were better suited for because uh, we lost. We were 0-2 at that point. And uh, we had Otis Anderson, O.J. Anderson, who played in the NFL for a lot of years. And he was a stallion. He was great. Great teammate. And it was his senior year at Miami. And um, he has still a lot of records at Miami. And so um, they made a change. And we had a team meeting, and coach went through all the changes. But he didn't say, didn't say anything about center. So I went to the offensive coordinator and I said, well, coach, I guess I'm still second string. Oh, no, 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 you're starting. So we played against Kansas. Otis had 100 and something yards in the game. Uh, we won the game 36 to nine. We played Auburn on the road. They were ranked. We were obviously, we were one and two. We were unranked and we won that game 17 15. And that kind of put me on the path as the starting center. And, um, Lou left before I did. Lou went to army that Christmas break and Howard Snumberger came. And again, Howard made it really difficult. He wanted to see who was going to stick it out. And, um, it was like a, you know, it's like a fist fight. You know, as a lineman, it's like a fist fight. You're just in a fist fight with the defensive line, every play and scrimmages and that in spring football to see who's tough enough, who's going to hang in there. So you've played, who's the, who's the first coach that you played for at Miami before Lou Saban got there? I call it the three S's. So it was Carl Selmer. Carl had come from Nebraska. And when Tom Osborne got the head, the, the nod to be the head coach, Carl left Nebraska as an offensive coach. He came to Miami, ultimately became the off, you know, the uh, head coach for two seasons and great man. We just, we just weren't winning. And, uh, so he was fired. He and the staff were fired. That's interesting year. that, uh, they were thinking about 
canceling the football program. You know, Miami is sort of one of those iconic D1 football programs. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, certainly when you talk about the top five or ten programs, Miami seems to always be in the discussion. You know, it's, it's, think about that, right? I've, I've thought about this. So if you go back to the decision to invest in the program, bring yeah. in a pro coach, and not take resources away, because yeah. they had done that with basketball. In 72, Rick Barry was on the last basketball team in, in, Miami, in Miami until we brought it back after the success of the football program. And um, I did not know Rick Barry went to Miami. Yeah, yeah. And did you and, help him with with his free throw shooting skills? No, I didn't. He was he graduated before I got there. I was still in high school. But um at any rate, um you know, to that decision in that moment, right, to build a program. I mean, yeah. look at colleges now. They all want to have football programs why? Alumni giving. It bolsters the um yeah, it bolsters the the, the good feelings for the university and you get more dollars from your alumni. And, um, you know, I was just, I was very fortunate. I was at the university last week. I was in Coral Gables delivering two workshops and, uh, the university's in Coral Gables. And so I made time to go by and watch practice, get, get a tour of the facilities. It's amazing the transformation that's yeah. gone through in the last, well, now it's 40 years for me, but 39 years, but, um, aging myself here. But it was just amazing what we've been able to put into the program and the, and the facilities are just top notch. Well, you were an important part of turning that around, getting that moving. I feel that. I mean, Howard Snellenberger was the first coach to win a national championship at Miami, and he did that in five years. And I played for him for two years. I always wished I had another year or two uh, to play. I used to have dreams about that. One more year. Um, I had suffered a knee operation that I overcame and came back and played my last year out of ser- serious knee operation. Uh, my academic uh, senior year, my junior year, uh, eligibility-wise, came back from that, earned my job back. Uh, and played the entire season. Played my last game here in Atlanta in the Peach Bowl. We were ranked 18th in the country and had a nine-win season with Jim Kelly, Mark Richt, and a lot of great guys that went on to the NFL. What was it like playing with Jim Kelly? It was great. Great. Jim. Jim was a really hard-nosed guy, and it was interesting because the year I got hurt, he was not. He was not the starter right out of the gate. We had three quarterbacks that came in together: Mark Richt, Jim Kelly, and other gentleman Mike Rodriguez, and they all were competing, and we're kind of running a combination veer offense pro style and uh jim was not the starter right out of the gate well he was um, a red-shirted freshman in 1979 his second year at miami that's the season i got hurt but when jim would go into the game late in the game we would move the ball and we would score touchdowns and he was a great competitor really um just a good guy um he could he could you know uh matter of fact joe paterno had recruited him to be a a linebacker for Penn State, and he didn't. He, he grew up in Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh, and he wanted to play quarterback, and that's how he got to Miami. And um, it's a great competitor, and so he started the week after I had my knee operation. We played Penn State on the road, and he started that game, and we won that game at a huge upset, and that put Jimmy on the map as the starting quarterback. How was it? Uh, you know, how did you handle? Three different coaches in your what? You were there five years, right? That's right. And you picked up an MBA in your fifth year. I want to come back to that. I did. That what did that teach you? The transitioning from each of the coaches and their styles and dealing with that. I mean, it seems to me sitting on this side of things that that would have served you very, very well for any sort of transitions down the line, handling controversy, stress, and so on. Yeah, and there were lots of those (laughs) down the line. Um, You know, it's really interesting. So I always took a mindset of. I'm going to work on me. Yeah. And I always had this because I never really played sports till, till high school, really, that 
I always listened to my coaches. I took the advice from my coach. Now, sometimes I got bad advice. Sometimes I got great advice. And, but I always listened to them and, um, I just fully invested myself in what the mission was. Now I could have chosen to transfer to somewhere else. It wasn't popular in those days to do that. It's more popular nowadays, but I could have transferred to some other university, but I, I had made a commitment. Like I said, I'm not a quitter. Uh, the coaches weren't going to get rid of me. And, um, you know, just understanding of the game plan and what the direction of the program and each coach got a little bit better. So Lou was great at recruiting, um, having a winning mindset. We had a winning season his last year and then he left. And then Howard, Snellberger brought in even higher level of commitment to excellence and really set the tone and had vision and great vision. And so I bought into that. You know, I allowed myself to buy into that and to believe that we could, could be better than we were, had been. Well, it's easier if you have a coach that you put yeah, faith in and, and you know, you trust him. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier. Trust is so huge in, is. In, in life and business and everything. I mean, it's one of the things I really work with teams and, and, and folks on and really interesting too, a little anecdote. So last week I was leading two workshops with a bunch of CPAs and consultants in Coral Gables. And, uh, the first was on leadership skills. The second was on team building. And we had a cross section of folks in that, in that meeting. And we had some millennials and we had some Gen Xers and baby boomers and all the other generations in between there. And, and so I was going through my, I only got through maybe two or three slides and the whole conversation shifted. And so I had like an hour presentation and then we had like a 45 minute kind of round table discussion kind of format. The table, the conversation just took off because one of the, uh, um, millennials spoke up and she has some very interesting points to make. And it just, it fired up the whole audience, the whole group, 45 people. Everybody got engaged. The whole conversation just took off. And, uh, that whole, we went an hour and 40 minutes and the, the host said, okay, we got five minutes left. And we just had a great, great conversation, but it's all around communication. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that, um, um, of all the things I'm impressed with, uh, about your history is you did pick up a four year degree in four years mm-hmm. and then you picked up an MBA in the fifth year. Mm-hmm. And, um, Miami picked up a tab for all that, right? You were still oh, on yeah. scholarship. I mean, that, Very fortunate. I think the, uh, well, I think you, you applied yourself. I mean, there's no question about that. Well, I did. Um, I always carried a full load. And you don't have to in college. There's a certain minimum of credits you can carry, and some guys do that. Because it is, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a full-time job, seven days a week. Even in the off-season, there's always something to do and focus on. But I had a mission, a goal of myself to finish in four years. And I was in the accounting program. And I'm going to tell you, I struggled. Intermediate accounting is the, it's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's the course that they weed people out of the accounting program, right? It's kind of like the coach in spring football. And, um, I just really applied myself. I had a couple of, co- a couple of teachers that sort of mentored me a little bit to help me yeah. get through that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, I stuck in there, hung in there. I got finished on time. And what happened was I really didn't plan to get an MBA, but the athletic director came to me. Dr. Harry Malias came to me and he said, well, what are you going to do your, your last year? And I was still rehabbing my knee and all that. And it was a nine month process to rehab, rehabilitate my knee. And, um, I said, well, you know, I'll stretch out my credits and I'll graduate in, Jan- in December and I'll go to work in January. Accounting firms need people in January because they're busy season. He said, why don't you apply for an MBA? Take a GMAT and apply. And I'd never thought of that. So I did that. And I scored well enough and I was accepted into the program and the university paid for that. And so you know, sometimes you get these, these people along in your life that are sort of a voice for you that can be a mentor or yeah. a guidepost. Well, they're put, looking out for you, which yeah, that absolutely. guy clearly did. Absolutely. And 
so I finished up, you know, finished my last season ends in December, right? I was still in the NBA program. I did it in 12 months, 36 credit hours in 12 months. I really worked my butt off. Oh, and we got married in May. So I wouldn't even finish when we got married. Yeah. You didn't have anything going on. <laughs> Nothing going on. <laughs> Um, but I was anxious to get out in the working world and, and, and start earning some money and uh, went to work in Houston, Texas, um, right out of college. Knowing you now for eight or 10 years, it it's really still hard for me to believe that you were a CPA. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean that uh, respectfully. Um, how did you decide? How did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Well, it's interesting. I... Um, my roommate and I were in business school together. We weren't, I was a business major, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to, to study. I took some marketing classes. Yeah, okay. And uh, the accounting class I kind of liked. But then my roommate's father um, was an internal auditor with Florida Power and Light. And he said, oh, the best way to go is get your, get your accounting degree and then go to law school and you can write your own ticket. And so we both started going through the accounting program. Um, and, uh, it was not easy. It was very difficult, especially carrying a full load. And, yeah. um, and that's how I kind of gravitated to that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, it's a lot more than just numbers. It's about, there's some, there's some benefit or some, I guess some, you know, um, I like to see numbers and, you know, that kind of thing, but that doesn't, what's dry. That's not what drives me. Um, but it's working with people. And so there's a lot of rules and regulations and things, and it's gotten much more regulated, obviously. But I've always focused on the people side of the business, and and, and it's all about relationships. And um, so I use that as a vehicle, basically, to accounting firms when the ones were hiring back then because it was a huge recession. That was yeah. the other great recession before the one we had uh, in 2008, yeah. 2009, uh, 1981. I mean, nobody was hiring, and accounting firms were. Accounting firms generally seem to be sort of recession-proof in some regard. So, and so I f- kind of followed the opportunity. It's very impressive. Uh, you, you, you graduate from high school in 1976. You have, uh, three different coaches that you played for. You had to, uh, assimilate and get to know and survive. Uh, you didn't quit. You got your degree in four years. Uh, you got an MBA in year five. You had a serious knee injury and you, I mean, that, that in and of itself, we could spend hours talking about that. I, I think that that says a lot and just curious. How many hours a day did you do football-related items when you were at Miami? Oh, I mean, classes were the easiest part. That was three hours. And then you had practice. In season, practice was three and a half hours. Plus, you had meetings before and sometimes meetings after. So seven, eight hours, easy. Yeah, and it's seven days a week. I mean, even on Sunday. We got a little bit of a break on Sunday. Um, You wanted to dress out, and you wanted to go to travel to the games because um, you got Saturday night off after the game. Uh, and then Sunday you had the morning, but you had to be back in the afternoon. So you had like a lesson a full, you had a lesson 24 hour reprieve from, uh, the rigors of, of what we had to do, but you're back at it Sunday afternoon. Was it gratifying to see Howard Schnellenberger beat Nebraska in that game? It was. In, in the uh, national championship it was, in it, 1984. It was amazing. <clears throat> and my wife, so my wife was pregnant with our daughter. We were living in Houston, Texas. And from Christmas, she got me two tickets to the Orange Bowl game. And so I, she couldn't fly. So I flew back. My dad and I went to the games. Mm. My parents still lived in South Florida, South Florida then. And, um, it was amazing to be, to be part of that. And I actually went to the after party after, um, and saw Coach Snellenberger. And he really, he made a comment. He said, you know, you were part of the foundation to help build this program to where it was at. And I had a, I wanted to find him. I hadn't seen him since 1984. 
Hmm. And uh, he literally lives five minutes from my mom in uh, Boynton Beach, Florida. Hmm. So I, through a friend of mine, I connected with him, went to his home about two two summers ago and had a great, like an hour and a half conversation with him. And I mean, his house is just like a, a plethora of memorabilia from all his coaching experiences out of Alabama and the Dolphins and Hurricanes and other, you know, Louisville and other places he coached at. And I wanted to find him because I wanted to say to him, coach, I want to acknowledge you for allowing me to play my last year. So I had come from off a knee injury and uh, the first day back in August of uh, 1980, coach had us all run, they called the 12 minute run. You had to achieve a certain distance of 12 minutes. And um, I was determined, there's a picture of this. I have, I use it in my materials too. There's a picture of this. It was in the Miami Herald front page of the sports section of all the linemen running together the first step of that 12 minute run. That was the first step of me coming back for 1980. I was not the starter when I came back. I had to earn my job. Mm -hmm. And right next to me is the gentleman who played center when I got hurt. And he was a very good center. He's three years younger. So I had more experience. And, um, I was determined to finish first to prove that I was back. And I did. And, um, was going against the Jim Burt. who was an all, all American nose tackle and played for the giants for a number of years in the NFL. So I got the opportunity to play against a very good nose tackle. And I think as I coached, as I told coach Snellenberger, I said, coach, thank you for choosing age over beauty and, and giving me the start and nod. And I played the whole season without injury. And, uh, the other gentleman who played center, Don Bailey, is the voice of the Hurricanes. He's a successful businessman with a carpet business in South Florida, and he does the radio for the Hurricanes, and we still stay in touch. Well, that must have been gratifying for you to uh, come back from all that adversity and play in that game, watch uh, Schnellenberger beat Nebraska in that game in January of 84. Mm-hmm. And how old would Coach Schnellenberger be now, roughly? He's like, he's like 85. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of figured that. Yeah. That must have been great to kind of go back and, uh, you know, thank him and spend that time. Uh, I think that's really important if you've got coaches or people in your lives that you take that time because I think it's important for them, but I think it's also cathartic and important for the person that is sharing mm-hmm. the information. Absolutely. And, and his wife, Beverly, they've been married for a long, long time. And Beverly, they invited me to his Facebook group and that kind of thing. And Beverly sent me a text message later that night that said, thank you for coming to see coach. He really, really appreciated the time you spent with him today. Yeah. I must have felt great. So you've, you work for BDO, you, the last eight years you were there, you were the managing partner of the office here in Atlanta. Tell us, tell us about that. Wow. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a story to that too. So I was in North Carolina and I had moved around with the firm. I'd been in four different offices of BDO. I started in Houston. We came back to South Florida was asked to go to North Carolina, um, and I became the uh, managing partner of the High Point North Carolina office at the time. Um, and the firm asked me to go to Atlanta. Now, my wife's family had all moved to Atlanta before that, so it was like kind of going back home. So it was a good move from a family perspective, and our daughter was getting ready to go to college. So mm-hmm. it, timing worked out. And I was not the, the managing partner when I first came back, but a series of events occurred, and I became the managing partner. And we were going through this just crazy transformational growth. And so we had decisions to make in that time about how are we going to grow this practice? What type of clients do we want to take on? You know, Sarbanes-Oxley and the regulations had just come out. One of our major competitors had gone out of business at that time. And so there was just a lot of activity in the marketplace and a real game changer. And, you know, we, when I got the nod, 
my first approach was that we need to really build a coalition of the partners to move in the same direction because I can't do it all myself. And so we did that and, um, and we promoted some partners within the firm and we really looked at our culture and our, and who we hire. We had great people on board, but we didn't have a, we did not have enough of the good, right people, the great people to get to where we wanted to go. So we had a vision of where we wanted to go and we just transformed the business. We doubled our size in, in a few years, took on great clients, you know, brought in great people from other firms and, and recruiting from colleges and really focused our efforts there with that mindset. And of course, there was a lot of stress with that. A lot of hours, 80, 60 hour, 60 hour, 80 hour weeks. Um, I remember coming home one time. I was with a client. They were working on a transaction. It was going to be millions, tens of millions of dollars for their business. And I got home late one night. And my wife, who was always Vicky, who was always very understanding, meets me in the driveway. And she's pounding her fist on the hood of my car. And she says, why aren't you ever home? Why aren't you ever home? Screaming at the top of her lungs. So that was a kind of a wake-up call for me. Um, and I was always concerned about my team and about the stress they were under. I was really concerned about them. So I was always focusing on them a lot. And, uh, and I knew they were under a lot of stress. So we tried to find ways to be creative to help relieve that stress where we could. Um, and, uh, bringing more people and qualified, you know, quality people on board helped with that a lot. And, uh, and just was, you know, taking, you know, it was something I thought about every day. I want to be the best leader I could be. And I can tell you right now, I was not always a great leader. Um, and I could hold of, emo- I could hold emotions and kind of bottle it up and then I would kind of explode usually at home or something. Um, and what helped me through that process was I discovered, um, Tai Chi and, um, fell in love with it, the discipline of it. I worked one-on-one with a master for over a year. We'd meet seven in the morning, um, together and I practiced regularly and went through 12 levels of, of training with him and became a black belt. And I've had a great opportunity to, to learn meditation and to in, incorporate that into my everyday. Um, and I've been to the, literally the top of a mountain um, and been with great teachers <clears throat> and masters uh, around mindfulness and meditation. And so it, it's part of what I – all these experiences I bring together, business success, collegiate athletic success, the failures along the way, um, mindfulness and, and tai chi – and, and integrating some of the latest thinking on leadership and team building and integrate that into everything that I do. I think one of the things that, that one of the takeaways that I have is that you're also a great teammate. That, you know, I mean, because, you know, what I get from you uh, is that, you know, you're unselfish. Um, you're kind of laid back. You don't really run your mouth. Uh, you know, and one of the reasons why you know, you're on market mate radio is that you are unselfish. You have been good with referrals. You're, uh, you know, you're willing to help. And so part of the genesis of the show was to really highlight people that are good to work with, that are good resources. That's a word we use a lot here that are unselfish. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways you can help somebody. You can help somebody with a direct referral that turns into money in their pocket. You can help somebody by making an introduction to them that will help them with their business. So there's business development angles here. And so I think there's a lot of ways in a relationship, you know, business relationship that you can appeal to someone. And so, uh, you certainly helped me. Um, but one of the things, discipline, you know, being able to handle stress, that's, you have to have that if you're a division one athlete that, I mean, it's not an alternative mm-hmm. to not have mm-hmm. those things, but I think being able to roll 
and you know three head coaches and all the things let's let's take away the fact that you were playing division 1 football let's take away that you got two degrees i think tearing up your knee that's a big deal you know being able to uh handle three different head coaches i mean i'm i'm certain that that's really served you well those experiences it really has i mean there were all sorts of leadership changes in our firm over the you know, i was with bdo for over 30 years yeah. lots of leadership changes and ups and downs being in different offices, not being the managing partner, so you're always reporting to somebody. Even a managing partner, you're reporting to somebody always. And so changes in the structure and all that, that goes on in everyday business life. But being adaptable, being open. One of the biggest things is, and you asked this question earlier, but it's really about being open yeah, right, to allow, um, to see possibilities. I'm all about creating possibilities. And I'm, I have this phrase I use, sharing it forward. Yeah, I'm all about sharing my experiences, the things that I've learned, sharing wisdom to help other people to kind of maybe shorten their time frame or their learning curve or the amount of money they spend in their own self development, yeah. um, and 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 just bringing that all together for folks. And you know, you mentioned I was a great teammate. There were times where I was not a great teammate. You know, and there were times I had to focus on me. Yeah, but I always cared about my teammates, even though I think. I was somewhat immature from an emotional standpoint as a young man. And I didn't always probably – I could have been a better teammate or a better leader than I was looking back on it. And I regret – that's one of the things I regret. But I'll never forget, like, we had a hurricane coming. Uh, I forget the name of the hurricane. But, we, you know, South Florida, you grew up with hurricanes. We had lots of them. And we had practice. And coaches hate to miss practices. They hate that. Well, this hurricane was coming. I think it was David. And it was a hurricane coming. And so the coaches said, anybody have any room at their homes or whatever nearby that can take some of the athletes? Because a lot of guys were from out of town to give them shelter. Well, my parents lived 25 miles away. And so I took four or five guys to my, my parents' home. And I was totally, you know, like I just, yeah, we got to do this, right? It was no equivocation about that. I wish I could have taken more. Yeah. You know, just my parents couldn't handle more. Um, I've always had that mindset, but I maybe didn't always demonstrate that. And sometimes some of that was trying to prove myself, trying to prove myself as a as a man, trying to prove myself that I belonged. You know, being a person who had never played any sports before really eighth grade or ninth grade and playing at that level, I always had this it's funny, right? These self talk, right? It's these voices in our head. The now, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Like what am I you know, how did I even do this? Right. Yeah. I couldn't even it was un- like I was unconscious just cre- doing this, and but I did it, and I would sometimes doubt myself. And I finally – it took me a while to figure that out, and I wish I, wish, well, I wish I had another year because I finally figured it out like my fifth year. I just started – you know, I'm just going to have fun. I'm just going to play and have fun, and I played so much better. And it was just so much more enjoyable. And, um, you know, but being open, being adaptable, you learn it as an athlete. You have to be able to shift. You know, you have to be able to – to adapt and shift and, and maybe the way I would think of something maybe isn't the way things are. So I have to be open to new ideas and thinking differently. And one of my taglines is think differently and achieve more. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, all that is a great story, but you know, what I heard when the guy in the gold t-shirt said what he said to you, what I heard when I got loud and clear is you decided, you -hmm. decided that you weren't going to be a part of the cream puff, uh, club anymore. And I, I think that's cool. Thank you. I, you know, it's really, and I've learned a lot more about this as I've gone on in life and all the things I've experienced. I was in a victim kind of mentality before that. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I can't do it. 
complaining and whining, um, resignation. And when I made that, it took courage. There's a tipping point in human emotion, and it's courage. The courage to step out of my comfort zone and to push myself in a place I was totally unprepared for. I had no way of knowing how to do that. I didn't know how to get over that green wall. But I allowed myself to push myself outside that comfort zone. Well, I think, I think, it, I think it's John Wayne that said, you know, courage, having courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. It means being afraid and saddling up anyway. That's right. And that's clearly what you did. Absolutely. And, and kind of, you know, I've done it throughout my life, putting myself into situations where maybe I don't have all the answers, but I was driven by there was something more. Yeah. Something more that I could do or I can contribute. And that's really what led me to uh, retiring early. Yeah. So you were with BDO for roughly 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that that's pretty much the only company you ever worked for, right? Well, no. Like corporately? I, I mean, I started with Arthur Anderson. Okay. Anderson, Texas, which okay. in the industry was kind of ground zero. And sure. There were lots of great people at Anderson. I was only there a year and a half. So okay. I'm going to full disclosure. I was laid off from my first job out of college in a strange town. When we just gotten married, took my wife to Houston, Texas, 1200 miles away from Miami. The oil economy had just crashed. Like the whole rest of the economy was in a rece- huge recession. The oil economy was bolstering Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado, et cetera. And that finally crashed. And we were, in, I was in an office of 2,000 professionals and about 200 of us got laid off and I was caught up in that. And after I went home and our, we had just bought a house, ouch, 15% mortgage rates, right? And d- double digit inflation those days. And I went home to my wife and I literally sat on the couch and I cried because like I'm a failure, right? I picked myself up the next day. I got with some headhunters and I found the firm that I ultimately worked for for over 30 years. Yeah. And I got a raise and a promotion in less than two weeks. Right. You didn't like that. No. <laughs> and I found my, but I found the place, like I was just sort of a fish out of water at that other firm. And when I came to BDO, it's like, I was just like, it was like a warm hug. Yeah. Right? Like I just felt like I belonged. And that's really important. It's culture is really important. And I didn't know coming out of college, I just went where I could go and get the best job. And Anderson at the time was the top firm of all yeah. the big eight back in those days. Um, and, um, you know, it was the best move that ever happened because the type of person I am, as you've heard, I'm not a quitter. I might've been with Anderson when it, the final demise of that firm that happened many years later, and that would have been devastating. And, um, uh, it was, dev- was devastating to a lot of good people. Um, but I, so I was, you know, these things, events happen in our lives and there's always, uh, an opportunity when one door closes, another one opens. hundred percent. What gave you the most satisfaction when you were working at BDO? Really helping, I always thought there was a better way, a better way to lead, a better way to really focus on how can we be our best. I heard another coach talk about this a few months ago. We can, you know, evaluations and stuff, we can talk about, well, you you know, you, you've been you've been reviewed by people and you got 29 things you did really good and there's one thing you need to improve on, which means you're not good enough. I hate those evaluations. In my opinion, they suck and they're not useful. <laughs> they're really not useful. The best, the best feedback you can get is get people around a table and talk face to face. Yeah. And, um, at any rate, um, so, um, but it was working with the people and helping them be their best. Yeah. And how can I be the best leader I can be? How can I help them be the best that they can be? Finding their unique talents. You know, you look at some great coaches like in the, in the NFL in particular, Don Shula. I mean, I was a huge Dolphin fan. He always had it seemed like he always had a knack for finding 
the right player for the right position. He did. Or, yeah, and or adapting the offense to the skills. When Dan Marino came on board, it was a whole different offense. And he was adaptable and he adjusted, right? And he found the right talent in the right place. And the same thing isn't true in business. You know, yeah. you have people, all of your people are good people and they want to do their best. Yeah. And sometimes they're in the wrong position, the wrong place. There's a great book by Gay, Dr. Gay Hendricks called The Big Leap. And he talks about there's like four quadrants. And Dan Kennedy, marketing specialist or expert, talks about this in a different way. But similarly, um, there's sort of four quadrants. One is your kind of your area of incompetence where you're not really good at something, right? Then there's your area of competence. So it's you're really good at it, but it doesn't really provide any value, doesn't excite you in the context of your business, it doesn't really add value to your business. The area of excellence, which is you're really, really good at something, but it also can kind of lull you to sleep a little bit. You know, Jim Collins in Good to Great talks about good is the enemy of great, just good enough. And sometimes we just get stuck in that zone of excellence and we don't push into your, what's called your unique ability. It's where you really thrive. Like the one thing you could do, if you could do it all day long, you would do it and time would just fly and you would feel so fulfilled if money was no issue. And what's that one thing in your business that you do? And so for me, a good leader finds the people that can be in their zone of excellence or their zone of unique ability and tap into that. Is there a test that, uh, that somebody can take that, that shows that? Um, I don't think so. There's lots of tests out there. It's there's sort lots of, of, there's yeah, lots of, I mean, you'll sit in different ways. There's yeah. lots of, um, you know, the DISC model and all Myers Briggs yeah, and all, I've done 20 or 30 of these yeah. different personality tests. Uh, so there's always some tendencies there. I don't think Gay Hendricks included a, a model or a test in his book. Good question. You know, when you retired, what, what prompted you to become a coach? Well, you know, it, it, it it seems like a natural uh, yeah. transition, though. Well, thank you. A lot of people, a lot of my friends are retired, and they just like they're retired, like they're playing golf all the time. Um, I just could never. I never had that mindset. Yeah, right? I just couldn't see myself sitting on the porch drinking cocktails at five o'clock every day and playing golf all the time. First of all, I don't think my body would allow me to do that. I thought you were going to say your wife. <laughs> yeah, right. No, my wife would rather me do that, honestly. But I had this kind of idea I wanted to help people. And, um, so long answer to your question. I, um, you know, about, well, I had an incident that occurred where I was at a doctor, a stress test and my heart started racing during the stress test and a doctor rushes in, lie down, we're calling the ambulance and they rushed me to Emory Midtown, take me into the cardiac ward and they're going to do a heart catheterization. I can still feel the cold operating room table on my back. They rushed me in there to hooking up all this stuff to me. They're going to do a heart cath. And I black out. And the last thing I remember was my wife and daughter. And when I re- recovered, the first thing I remember was my wife. The first, first people I saw were my wife and daughter, Vicky, my wife, and my daughter, Jennifer. And that was a wake-up call for me. Mm-hmm. And I was deciding, you know, I want to early take early retirement, but I'm not sure when. Well, that was the kind of the straw that pushed me over uh, to make that decision. And within less than a year, I was eligible for it. I took early retirement. So I took six months off to kind of play around and do some things. But I always wanted to help other people, and particularly from my background, executives. Yeah. To be their best leaders they could be and to have the best companies and teams of people they could be because they impact their employees, their families, and the communities in which they serve. And actually, I ran a yoga and tai chi center for a year and a half. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I was asked. I to, do now. Uh, yeah. I was asked to run it. Uh, it's for an organization, Body and Brain, Yoga and Tai Chi, and 
I ran, I, it was closed and I reopened it and stabilized it. Uh, they then sold it as a franchise to someone. I didn't want to be confined by the four walls. I wanted to be out in the world yeah. sharing my, my message and my experiences, sharing it forward. And, um, so I, um, had this idea, but I wasn't sure how it was going to look. Right. Mm. I took a big leap of faith to do that. And, um, and here I am today. How'd you, how'd you decide to write a book? Well, I always had this idea. I wanted to write a book and share my story. And there's another, there'll be other books coming out. Um, as I mentioned, my book, Five Minute Mastery, um, was a number one new release and bestseller a year ago today. Congratulations. Thank you. And, um, it, it's a little bit of my story of my life and also some experiences and I give mm-hmm. some guidance in there. It's not a long read. Um, and I don't believe in these, I mean, I read some books that are so lengthy and so wordy. It's like, we could say this in a lot less words. So I'm, I'm very yeah, if you brief. had more time, you'd written a shorter letter, one yeah, of those right, deals. Exactly, right. Um, but um, I, I had this idea I wanted to share some of my learning and my experiences yeah. with other folks. And so that prompted me to think about writing a book. And I started that process and thinking about it in 2016. I got into some coaching programs. Um, I have a great mentor, Jack Canfield, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul and The Success Principles. And I'm now in training to be a certified Canfield trainer. Um, using his methodologies. Um, and I've got to go to a mastermind retreat at his home, which is really cool. And I learned a lot there. And so that was in 2017. And so I just, in 2018, I had a, I rebranded myself. I redid my website, um, changed my, my logo and some other things and, um, began the process of finding someone to help me write the book. And that's what I did. And so it was my mission in 2018 to do that. And we did that. I got it done. Um, There'll be other books coming out in the future. Um, and, uh, as I mentioned, five minute mastery, the surprising secrets, secrets for transforming your stress to success and mastering what's important is a really a, um, a message that I think a lot of people need, can hear or should hear or want to hear because we're dealing with so much stress in our lives. And, um, other books will come out and I may have more of a memoir come out down the road, but I'm not ready to do that right now. Sharing my life's experiences, but, um, you know, it's kind of my transformation from being a victim to being the master of my life. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great story. I mean, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you uh, is what gives you the greatest satisfaction now? Oh, it's it's seeing the face of a client or, or team of people when they when the eyes when their eyes brighten up and they and they have an epiphany for themselves. They learn something that they hadn't thought of before that they open up more and they allow themselves to be more vulnerable and open. Um, and when I just see, I can see that in their face. And a lot of times I help people, executives sort of focus in on what is your unique ability or what's yeah. your unique zone of unique uh, expertise and kind of explore the possibilities with that. And the same in, in a group setting about opening up communication and, you know, recognizing everybody's people. We're all people and it's all relationships. We all have our talents and we all have our, experiences in life so that affects our beliefs and our thoughts and all those things and we can find some common ground there and really do do great things as a, as a team and so i just really love to see that the impact of uh when i talk to a group or i lead a, a retreat or a workshop or one-on-one that they really the light bulb just goes off for them how do you how was the transition when you retired you're working 60 70 80 hours a week and then was that hard? No. <laughs> it Why? really wasn't. 
I really had prepared myself for that. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting. So I still work hard at what I do, right? My wife kind of gives me some grief about that. I do practice what I preach. Um, sometimes some days ebb and flow, like everything for everybody, right? Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I said, I said it took about six months to kind of play around. We went to Hawaii and that kind of stuff. And then really kind of got focused on what I wanted to do going forward. And I was teaching yoga and Tai Chi and that kind of thing. And then that led me into managing a center for a year and a half. And that consumed my time a lot um, for a year and a half. And then I, I discovered Vistage. I'm a Vistage speaker. I was a Vistage coach. They call Vistage chairs. A lot of great Vistage chairs in the Atlanta market. I know you're a Vistage member as well, Corey. And, um, and somebody recommended that I consider being one of the, one of the coaches. And so I went through their training. I launched a group. Great experience, right? Great, great experience. I, I launched a group, um, at about a year and a half into it. So the theme here, year and a half into it, I decided that's not what I wanted to do because I wanted to have more of an impact with my message. And I was trying to do two things at once. I was trying to run that business, but also run my own private consulting business. And that was an epiphanal <clears throat> moment and towards the end of 2017. And I transitioned my members. Most of them are still members today, and I'm still staying in touch with them. Um, and they got a lot of great value from that experience, and I learned a lot from that experience. But I felt like I needed to be more independent and more doing my thing the way I wanted to do it, um, moving more into my what you call it, zone of unique ability. How do you find somebody's zone of unique ability? There's a series of questions you can go through. It's a lot of self-reflection. Sometimes I can just see it, right? So, you know, I want to blow all your your listeners away with any too woo-woo stuff, but, you know, everything is energy. Everything is energy. Um, if you read anything about quantum physics, you know, and Einstein really kind of, and other uh, physicists kind of got this ball rolling, gosh, 100, over 100 years ago now. Um, you keep breaking matter down, and, and everything is energy and matter, but everything keeps breaking down to energy. And, um, and so thoughts are energy. Emotions are energy. They ebb and flow. And so I use my intuition a lot, right? And so I allow myself to be vulnerable, to be open, to open the conversation with my, my clients one-on-one or in a group. I create a safe place for them to do that. And as we open up more and more, 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 they start to re- reveal more about themselves. Mm-hmm. Just I get a, a feeling or a sense of something that maybe this is a path they can follow, and um, and so it's sort of my one of my I'll just call it one of my secret powers I guess that I kind of follow my intuition. You know, yeah. we can get locked up on our thinking a lot. Easy to do, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, but really following your gut, following your heart, and your intuition can really I've never it's never let me down in the past. What's an ideal client for you? An ideal client is someone who. Um, feels there's more in their life. They're very successful. Uh, they can, you know, really any age group. I mean, I, I think I relate more to m- millennials than my own. Really? Yeah, I think so. I just, I just relate to them. It seems Why do like, you think that is? I think I'm a, I think I'm a millennial in a, in a, in the body of a baby boomer, I think. Um, <laughs> just, they're, they're just, I know I just connect with them. It seems, um, I'm just basing this on my, my, my experience with dealing with millennials. My daughter's a millennial, older millennials. There's different ages of millennials, different <clears> groups, right? <throat> Um, and, uh, but you know, we, we don't want to pigeonhole people and put them in buckets, but everybody, everyone's people, everyone's a person and they all have different, uh, strengths and weaknesses and likes and dislikes and experiences. Um, and, um, so I just enjoy being with people. 
Yeah, I get that loud and clear. That's that's clear. <clears throat> and that's been my ex- experience with you. If you could give the younger version of John some advice, knowing what you know now, what would it be? <clears throat> follow your heart. Follow your intuition. Um, I think if I'd have done college over again, I would have gone gotten a history major. I love history. I didn't. I was practical. I didn't choose history because what kind of money can you make other than being a professor and you got to get PhDs and all that kind of stuff. And so I was more practical, pragmatic about it. Um, but um, I think just being more open to possibilities and follow your intuition. And I think I did that a lot of times. Um, and I, a lot of my, I, I don't regret the decisions I made. I mean, each one was a learning experience. I think too, being more. Um, more conf- self-confident in how I interact with other people could really help me mm-hmm. be a better teammate and a better, and a better leader. And it was something I had to learn. It wasn't something that came naturally to me. I was very closed off in some regards um, growing up. If there was a young person that wanted to follow your arc of success, what insight would you give them? <clears throat> be open. Never, never um, don't believe your own voices in your head. Believe in yourself. Be open for new possibilities. Follow your heart and your intuition about what it is you want to create in your life. You can create anything you want to create in your life. And some people say that's trite and that's BS. And I I don't believe that. I believe that. No, that's true. I believe it's true. And it may not look exactly the way you think it's going to look right now. But take that first step towards following your dream. Um, Believe in yourself. Let go of the past. Focus on the future. Well, John, congratulations on all of your successes, both uh, business-wise and personally. Uh, you've been a great guest. We certainly wish you continued success. If there was one of the listenership, if they wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do it? Great. How would they do it? Well, you can, you can go to my website, www.johnjfenton.com. Also, uh, you can call me directly, uh, 404-217-5889. Uh, send me an email. John at johnjfenton.com. And for all your listeners, they can, they can go to a, spe- I have a special free gift for all of them. They can go to www.johnjfenton.com forward slash five, the number five, five day challenge. It's a free guide. Uh, it helps them with some of the dealing with some of the, some of the questions you asked about how do you find your unique ability and also some helpful tips in there uh, to be a better leader and a better a human being. Um, and so it's a five minute, five day, five minute challenge. So take five minutes a day to steal five minutes. It's so hard for executives to do this. Steal five minutes in your day, focus on your breathing and yourself and just for self and being a state of gratitude and appreciation and do that for at least five days. You can do it for longer. 30 days is awesome and see how your life might change. So it's a free guide. Again, johnjfenton.com forward slash five day challenge, free guide for them. John, thanks for being such a great guest on Market Made Atlanta. We appreciate you and continued success, my friend. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you. All right. This is Stone Payton for Corey Rick, our guest today, John Fitton, and everyone here at the Business Radio X family saying we'll see you next time on Market Made Atlanta.